0: It is a great uh, joy and privilege for me to be here with you today. A word of thanks to Tom and the elders for inviting us and giving me this opportunity and a word of thanks uh, ahead of time on behalf of my wife for your invitation to her to speak to the ladies next weekend. We so uh, appreciate the ministry here of this church I do bring you greetings from your sister church, really, Twin City Bible Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I have the joy of serving week after week. And I do want to say that Pam and I uh, greatly treasure the friendship that we have with Tom and Sheila, and we dearly love them. I do want to talk to you for a moment this morning about education and about certain institutions of higher learning that have the reputation for being very prestigious. In other words, there are those universities, for example, and so on, that have names that even demand respect when people hear them. They are the kind that people take pride, you know, in being accepted into them. Institutions like Harvard and Yale and Cambridge, Oxford, Tarrant County, College. (laughs) Historically, these schools have been considered top-rated schools, really, for various reasons. But there is one top-rated school we're going to discuss in more detail this morning, more specifically. When you're enrolled in this school, You learn lessons that you'll receive in no other school. I'm referring to one that all people are enrolled in at some point. It's the school of suffering. All people do suffer at some level. But for God's people, suffering has a meaningful purpose. God is actively involved in every single circumstance we ever find ourselves in regardless of how difficult it is. Or to continue that school motif, God is the professor, the instructor, who is ensuring that we learn exactly what He wants us to learn in the school. Now the Bible calls what God is doing in the midst of our suffering and trials and struggles and troubles, he, the Bible calls it discipline. The Greek term for discipline Is a combination of ideas, actually. It's the idea of education, training, on one side. And on the other side, it's the idea of chastening. Therefore, God does this. He disciplines us in the sense of instructing us, giving guidance, training us, schooling us. And He disciplines us at times in the sense of chastening, which means correcting us giving us reproof when we're wrong or when we fail or when we are straying in some way or when we are in error when we sin. God uses times of trouble in our lives for both of these ideas. He is actively and strategically correcting us and He's actively and strategically teaching and training us. His discipline, therefore, And this is so important. His discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Punishment because he's angry with us. All his judicial wrath, all his divine anger was poured out on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ suffered and died on the cross... That's what was going on. He was taking divine judicial wrath and anger and punishment on himself so that God's people would be saved from all that. So what we experience from the hand of God in times of suffering is something different than that. Even if the suffering is due to our own sin. Now the clearest statement of this is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 4 to 11, which I'll read as we go through the text, Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Just a quick review of the book of Hebrews before we look at that passage. The original readers of this book were Jewish, they were Jewish readers of this, they were experiencing persecution. So much so that some in the congregation, not all, maybe not even the majority at all, some were tempted to give up following Christ and return to the relative safety, and I emphasize relative safety of Judaism at that time. And if they did that, the author makes it clear in this book that they would be demonstrating that they were not really saved because true followers of Christ persevere in their faith to the end. Now, to illustrate this truth, the writer in chapter 11 provides many examples of those who did endure all sorts of difficulties, and yet they trusted God all the way to the end. That's the purpose for what we tend to call the hall of faith, chapter 11. In other words, individuals listed there because of the faith those individuals by the way are not listed there because they were perfect by any means we are not to emulate everything about who they were and what they did but they were people of faith even though they failed at times and even though they struggled they did persevere in their faith in God and that is something we should emulate Now that list of great men and women of faith is then followed in chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 where the author is comparing our our life, he's comparing living for the Lord to a race. It's a race in which true runners keep running, they endure all the way to the end of the race. And then Jesus is presented to us as the ultimate one, the ultimate runner the one who we are to look to for encouragement in this race, he is the ultimate example of persevering in obedience to the Father and trusting the Father all the way to the end. And that brings us to verses 4 through 11. And here we find the author acknowledging the reality of the suffering that God's people will experience as they run the race. It is the suffering and pain And difficulties that can tempt someone to be discouraged, to be tired and weary and want to give up. Even worse, it's suffering and trials and struggles and difficulties that can tempt someone to believe that God doesn't love them. God's rejecting them. Maybe God has abandoned them. That there's no help for them in God. That's what people told David, you know after he had sinned. See that in Psalm 3, the first verse or two. There's no help for you from God because of what you've done. So this passage presents the right thinking, the right thinking that'll help us then endure the suffering of this fallen and broken world that we live in so that we aren't frustrated and so that we don't become bitter and angry, so that we don't want to give up over the fact that life, no matter what we do, life keeps throwing us these curveballs so that we submit to God's processes, so that we trust Him, so that we persevere in our faith in Him. Now this right thinking I want to present to you this morning from this passage consists of two realities That we should call to mind during suffering and times of difficulty. Our suffering, our difficulty confirms these two realities. When life is hard, remember this reality number one, that we haven't finished our race. We need to remember this reality if we're suffering. It's a time to remember this that we haven't finished our race. Now we need to start our discussion of this with just a brief glance back at the exhortation in, in verse one of this chapter. Look back there for a moment, Hebrews 12:1. It tells us there, "Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us." What an important phrase that is. That phrase set before us indicates that this race that each of us are running in this fallen world is a specific race. It is a particular race. This is language that confirms the fact that it is a sovereign and wise God who has specifically designed the race for each of his people. I ran track when I was younger, many, 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 did I say many yet? Many years ago. I was a sprinter, I was fast. But. Pretty much anything over a hundred meters for me, which back in the dark ages we called a hundred yards, you know, anything over a hundred yards was a marathon for me. And so I had to help my coach understand. I, I can make it a hundred, maybe a hundred and one. <laughs> had to help him determine how long the course would be for me. Not in life, not when it comes to our suffering and suffering. Troubles, not this race. God's the one who's determined how long the course is. He's the one who's determined the particular obstacles we will face. All the specific times of difficulty, all the times of persecution, times of insults, rejection from other people, times of illness, times of injustice, times of being sinned against, the times where we are facing temptation. God is sovereign over all that. There are many, many situations and forces in this race that will seem so strong to us with the ability to bring us down. God has set this race before us. It's the race that He's called us to run. And it is a struggle. And this struggling and striving that's necessary for us these challenges that are against us, it is all something that's going to characterize our entire earthly existence. You're thinking, man, I came to be encouraged this morning and so far, I want my money back. It's a fight, it's a struggle that ends only at our death. Therefore, that there is an obvious yet important question each of us needs to answer this morning. I I think it's one you can't answer. You may have to think really hard about it, but here it is. Right now, are you alive? I mean, don't rush it. Think about it. (laughs) Ask your neighbor. Are you alive? If you're not, you don't really need to listen, really, to the rest of the sermon. (laughs) But after meditating on this, thinking about this, getting some counsel, calling a friend, if you conclude that you are alive, then the point in verse 4 of our passage certainly applies. That even though you've already faced many trials, look at verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, keep in mind the original readers. That's how the author told the original readers that they were still alive. They hadn't suffered to that point yet. Those original readers had suffered. They had experienced striving against sin, the author calls it, and that included their own sin and as well the sin that others were committing against them. But it all must be kept in perspective. Even though they had endured persecution, Severe persecution, some of them, reproaches, afflictions, imprisonment, abuse. For some, Hebrews tells us they had suffered the plundering of their property. Yet, if they were reading this letter or hearing it written, they had not yet shed their blood in death. Jesus had, back in verses 2 and 3, he endured the death of the cross But these readers were still alive. They had not become martyrs due to persecution. And notice how verse 4 has those little words, not yet. It could still happen for them. That's the significance of that phrase, not yet. But let's take all this in the broadest sense for us today. This is still true at the highest level for each of us who are here this morning, who are alive, for now, just as for the original readers, we are still running the race, And since that's true, we're going to have to reconcile ourselves to the reality of something that struggling and striving are not over yet for us. Striving against sin, the struggle will necessarily be there until the finish line. Sinful people are going to oppose us to the end. Our flesh never goes away. You know, our fallen humanness, the principle of sin that dwells in our our fallen humanity that doesn't go away until we're glorified. We have this new orientation in Christ. And so because of that, there's, a, there's an ongoing struggle against the flesh. That's going to keep going. And we will strive against all the types of troubles that are just the result of living in a fallen, broken world. A world that's under sin's Curse. Therefore, whether it is opposition from the world, opposition from unbelievers, opposition from the world system, opposition from Satan and his minions that do his work, opposition from our flesh, just simply the trials and tribulations that go along with living in a broken world, we will continue to face trouble and pain and suffering and difficulties and persecution and injustice and correction and shaping and stretching in some form or other until we die. Now, I'm not here to present some sort of trick and how you can know if the struggle, if the suffering is literally the result of your own sinful choices and therefore God's chastisement in that sense, or how you can know if it's just a general trial due to the fallenness of the world. I mean, sometimes you might have an idea about that, but I've been asked that before, and I, I don't know that we can necessarily know that all the time. It is what it is, we like to say. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. God is sovereign over all of it. So regardless, we can't just spend all of our time trying to evaluate the troubles from that angle. Instead, we need to remember this reality that if we're suffering for any reason, it's just confirmation of something. We haven't yet finished our race. The very course that God has determined for us. Reality number two, that's confirmed in our time of trials and therefore we need to remember it. Number two, that God hasn't finished his work. That God hasn't finished his work. Yes, as I've said, one reason that we can suffer in this world and then become discouraged or weary in the race is just forgetting the nature of the fallen world we live in. But an even bigger source of discouragement can be wrong thinking about God, wrong thinking about His purposes. You see, it is possible to wrongly conclude that suffering means that God is unconcerned maybe unaware or he doesn't love us he no longer accepts us he's left me without any help or even worse to think that he's angry with me and punishing me but suffering and pain and opposition and even battle against sin are not evidences that god has abandoned us on the contrary God is actively involved in every one of our circumstances. In fact, all that we experience should be viewed that way as something He uses, and therefore it falls under the broader heading of what we're talking about this morning, the loving discipline of the Lord, the correction and instruction of a wonderful, loving Father. Regardless of what we go through, In each and every circumstance, God is intentionally and strategically using every moment of difficulty and suffering and persecution and struggle to accomplish his purposes in this world for his own glory. And to accomplish his purposes in our lives to help us ultimately endure in the race all the way to the end that he has set for us. This is His loving discipline of us, and it's a work that is not yet finished. And that is a source of encouragement to us for two reasons. Here's reason number one that is so encouraging. Discipline confirms to us His love. Discipline confirms to us His love. Or to say it differently, it confirms that we belong to Him. Look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. You see, the author wanted his readers to think about what the Scriptures had, have always been teaching on this topic. In particular, what is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. He's going to quote that in just a moment. And notice what he says about the Scriptures. It's, Addressing them. It's a wonderful word, addressing. It actually means speaking or reasoning with. If we take the Scripture seriously, and we do, and we listen to it, it speaks to us, right? It reasons with us. Truth is brought to bear on our thinking. And so Scripture is working on that and persuading us of what is true. Scripture is actively doing that. So he says, just remember that for a moment, and pay attention to what it's saying, and he quotes Psalm 3. Here it is, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Scripture addresses God's people as sons. Pause our study just for a moment in Hebrews. This is pointing to us, pointing us to the wonderful doctrine of adoption. God adopts as his sons, his children, but Scripture just broadens it and calls all of his sons. He adopts as his sons those who trust in Christ. Galatians 3.26 says it this way, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse 5, Paul there tells us of God's sovereign role in that adoption. It says in Ephesians 1, 5, God has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Then he gives us those wonderful words in Romans 8, verse 15, where it says that we have a spirit of adoption. And because of that, we cry out, Abba, Father. What an encouraging and important doctrine this is, even more so, dare I say it, even more so than the doctrine of justification. Don't get me wrong there. That doctrine is essential. The doctrine of justification that says this, that that God that we read about earlier, the Lord Most High, the one who's created all things, he's also the divine, eternal judge. Doctrine of justification says for those who come In faith and repentance to him through Christ, God, the divine judge, pronounces the sinner standing before his bench, so to speak, pronounces the sinner forgiven and therefore not liable to punishment. And therefore we can have a a standing, a legal standing before God. We can exist in his presence. What a wonderful doctrine and we're so thankful for our justification. However, adoption, there's something about it that's even richer I was out in California this last week at the Puritan Conference. It was a great time. And there, Dr. Joel Beakey said this about adoption. I love the way he put it, and this is the way the Puritans would think of it. In adoption, the divine judge, after pronouncing that verdict, comes down from his bench and says to the person, now come home with me. You are part of my family now that's rich. You see, Christ's followers are those who have switched families. I used to tell my kids that when they'd come home and say, you know, well, so-and-so gets to do such and such. And I say, well, you know, we're hardies and we don't do that. But if you want to switch families, you can go talk to them about that and, (laughs) and see if they would adopt you. Well, we were part of a family We were born physically into Adam's family. Most of the world is part of that family, and it is really a dysfunctional family. But by God's sovereign act, we were plucked out of that family. We were cut off from that family and grafted into God's spiritual family. And Scripture says, we're therefore made children of God. And therefore, brothers and sisters of Christ. Romans 8:29 says he's the firstborn among many brethren. So that includes all the privileges of adoption and being God's child. We have access to the throne of grace, to receive his fatherly care, therefore the privilege of prayer and bringing our burdens to him. He treats us with compassion and mercy and grace and love. Because of that, all of his wonderful promises that he makes to his people are ours. We have an eternal eternal inheritance because we're co-heirs with the firstborn son, Christ. We're secure. He preserves us all the way to the end. And when we fall, he restores us so that we don't fall away forever. And we're part of a brotherhood now. Look around. Part of the church family, brothers and sisters. What wonderful privileges of being adopted. But back to our text, this is a wonderful privilege of being adopted. We get to enjoy the loving discipline of the Lord. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. When God disciplines someone, he's just using their circumstances to train them as his children. That's what a loving father does, he disciplines his children so that they mature so anything we suffer should encourage us because God far from rejecting us he's actually showing himself to be a true father and treating us as his sons that's what suffering confirms our relationship with the Lord what encouragement this should be in his wisdom In his love, in his sovereignty, our heavenly father chastens and trains. And he does it by turning even adverse, even hostile circumstances around into what's for our good. So don't lightly regard that or faint. To regard lightly means to despise it or to treat it lightly, carelessly. To faint means to grow weary and to lose heart. Don't do that. And we won't do either of those if we keep the right attitude toward his discipline. We view it as what he uses in our lives because he's a good father to us. So divine discipline and sonship go hand in hand. Discipline proves God's love for us. Verse 6, And those, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Even people in the ancient world universally accept, accepted probably more then than now it seems that bringing up children involves discipline. It was unthinkable to the readers and the writer that a father if he loved his children would not discipline his son. Scripture makes it clear that if we don't we're, we're like a parent who doesn't love their child. Proverbs 13:24. if you withhold the raw discipline, you, you, you hate your son, it, it, it means like you're like the one who hates their child. So it would never be kindness on the part of the father to just give us unrestrained liberty with no correction, no reproof, no shaping, no molding. That kind of liberty ends in ruin. And I read this in some place that a, a great illustration of this is the kite. I I flew kites as a child. used to make my own kites out of newspaper. There used to be this thing called a newspaper, you see, that was made. Anyway. You tie the string on it, make a tail and all that with some of my mother's scraps from her cloths. And, and you know what the kite does, if you've ever done that. It, it just it strains against you. It, it, it wants to go on its own. It wants to, it, it wants to be free. So what happens if you, if you let it be free? it just flutters and falls. Paradoxical, but what keeps the kite up is holding it down. In the same way, the restraining, correcting influence of a loving father, though we might resent it at the time, we might naturally want to kick against it, it's best for the son. He disciplines those he loves, not those he's indifferent to, So back to our passage, the point for us is that we must remember this. It's confirmation of our sonship, what He's doing in our lives and shaping us. It's parental love. For whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Not just some even. Notice the little word, every son. He does it for all of His children. Adoption is equal for all of us. That's what trials and suffering and what God's doing indicate. Not divine rejection, just the opposite. Clear evidence of God's fatherly care. The writer so wanted to stress this that he does mention the opposite. Experiencing none of this, no chastisement, no shaping from God. Pretty serious. Verse 8, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons, word illegitimate would be the word they would use of one born to a slave or, or born to a concubine, just illegitimate in general. So that person's not an heir of anything, H-E-I-R, not a true member of the family, so the father doesn't feel any responsibility for that one. And I, I, I understood that when I was a father of younger children. Our children would have kids over from the neighborhood or church, and, and even if some of those other children needed discipline, and I've got a couple in my mind right now, <laughs> anyway let that go I wouldn't discipline them I would only discipline correct my own child I'd talk to the other parents about their children that's their responsibility so freedom from discipline that's not evidence of a privileged position for those other children they're just not my children the conclusion would be they're not my children. So the, that's true here. If we know nothing of God's discipline and his shaping in our lives and instruction, then the conclusion is we must not be his children. I want to say it again. This is not his punishment, not his divine wrath. All of God's wrath over the sins of his own people poured out on Jesus when Christ died on the cross. And that satisfied all of God's demand for justice. Yes, we can say this, we we can grieve God. God is grieved over our sin. There is a difference, we can say this, there's a difference between pleasing God and displeasing God. But we don't speak of God punishing us. We say He chastens, He disciplines, He instructs as an expression of His love. So one reason this is also encouraging to us is discipline confirms to us his love. Second reason. And here's why another reason it's a good thing. Number two, discipline conforms us to his character. Discipline conforms us to his character. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Literally, it's we had earthly fathers who were chasteners. And that's what they did when it was necessary. We may have resented that correction at a time. I've been away from the home for a long, long time. Both my parents are are with the Lord. But they were faithful to do this. And and so I I, I don't remember a lot of what they did. I I have two or three scenes that will be forever in my mind of of some discipline. But I I can remember certainly resenting maybe it, it at the time. But at the same time there was a reverence in my heart for them because I knew they loved me. So there is an argument from the lesser to the greater here in verse 9. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? Very unusual expression there about God, Father of Spirits, only found here in Scripture. It's a way to say that God is not an earthly father. He's divine. He's heavenly. And so His discipline is spiritual in nature. It affects that part of our life. It affects our spiritual life, if you will. So when we willingly and joyfully submit to this discipline instead of resenting it, we grow spiritually, we spiritually benefit from it. And that's when we truly begin to live, he says there. All the problems and hardships and shaping by God as he uses them are to help us truly experience the abundant life in Christ. And the confidence we can have is that He, the Father of Spirits, will never make a mistake in what He chooses to do in this. That's not true of earthly fathers, is it? Our writer comments on that in verse 10. They disciplined us only for a short time, as seemed best to them. The discipline and training we receive from our earthly fathers, it was for a short time, I mean, compared to the length of our lives. A brief number of days, really. And they did it according to what seemed best to them, which implies something. It was not always best. Sometimes they made mistakes. That was true of me along the way as a father. I certainly made many mistakes along the way. That's just the way it is with earthly fathers. We're not infallible, we do the best we can. And so, therefore, sometimes the training and the instruction and the chastisement is too severe. Sometimes It's less than what the child deserves. It's never like that with the heavenly father. Never makes a mistake in his choices. His assessment of what's necessary for you in this race is always correct. It's spot on. It's appropriate. He never acts in your life based on some kind of impulsive or arbitrary judgments. It's intentional. It's strategic. And what is this perfect heavenly father accomplishing with his perfect approach to discipline and chastisement? Verse 10 continues. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. It's always for our good so that we can share in his holiness. Holiness points to God's holy character. This is an essential attribute of God himself So this is saying that the aim of God's work in our lives, through our troubles, and our trials, even our failures, is to conform us to something, is to be more like him, his son. To share in that, to share in holiness, suffering is necessary. The shaping, the discipline is necessary. Here's what it does. You've experienced this. I know it teaches you some things. It teaches you to no longer rely on yourself. It teaches you to stop seeking security in earthly things. It teaches you to look trustingly and gratefully to Him alone for help, for strength, for blessing. And I understand the holiness is not something we'll experience in full until we're with the Lord glorified. But in this broken world, we can be molded more and more into a measure of it. That's called sanctification. And yes, naturally, we don't always enjoy the process that God takes us through. The author knew that as well. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness that's real isn't it we don't necessarily like correction chastisement but there's something really great it's called afterwards I like the afterwards part that was true when I was a child disciplined by my parents I liked most the afterwards part But see I was one of those kids and again back in the day when they gave swats in school still it was a long time ago When I was in junior high, that's what we called it, junior high and high school, I was getting SWATs in school. I was one of those. Periodically, sometimes frequently being sent to the principal's office, things I would do in class. And I'd get SWATs there from the principal, or even worse, he would send me to one of the coaches. And I'm convinced those men were angry at something Maybe angry because they were coaching at the high school level and turned down from a college or something. I don't know. But they took it out on me. And then to make it worse, salt in the wound, I lived in a small town and my mother had a beauty shop at her house. And all the information in the town went through that beauty shop. It didn't matter what I did. There would be news of it. I could always tell when i get home and dinner that night, my mom and dad would just be quiet at the dinner table. I knew it was coming. Son, we heard, you know, and then off they go. It's amazing I turned out at all. Yeah, I hated those swats, especially from the coaches, but I sure loved the afterwards when it was done. It's like that with God's discipline. It's not joyful for the moment per se. And the moments can kind of be a season. But afterwards, at some point, we're reminded of the fact of of what he's doing. He's maturing us. He's conforming us spiritually. It's how we grow to be more like Christ. It's how he treats us as his children, his sons. Notice how the author changes his metaphor here. He he uses a farming term to describe the result of this now, the character that we're conformed to, the holiness. He says something is yielded. That's a farming term. The word yield literally means to get back something. Just as a land, when you till it and plant it and all that, water it, the, the land yields a crop. This yields a fruit. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the word peace here is that Greek equivalent to that rich Hebrew term shalom. And shalom means more than just the cessation of hostilities. It can be used for that, but it's certainly not something superficial. It's it's the thoughts of quietness and tranquility and wholeness internally in the soul. You see, when we go through troubles, one of the things we have, and it's the worst part of our troubles, is a troubled heart. And we pray about our troubles and we pray about our circumstances. And I've certainly learned this. God does not always change our circumstances. I've come to believe most of the time he does not. He changes us. He removes the troubledness of our heart. He takes away the angst that we are experiencing in the soul. So that we have this quietness and tranquility This peaceable fruit and what goes along with that then is the holiness, the righteousness. So that we have a more pure life. We manifest or or give off a more fragrant character. We have a greater dependence on the Lord, a, a better understanding of ourselves and our weakness, a deeper devotion to truth and to the Father. It's all a good thing. Discipline confirms to us his love. Discipline conforms us to his character. So that leaves us with a question then, doesn't it? Is that what we truly want? Just so you'll know, our English word discipline comes from the Latin disciplina. And the Latin word implies a process of learning, schooling, schooling. That's what God's discipline is. It's the school of suffering. And every generation who's come before us of God's people, they've been enrolled in this same school we're in. And they did learn these things. They learned to rejoice. They learned that they were like gold in the furnace being refined. That will be true of us as well if we remember these realities If we remember that we're running still and it's a marathon race, it's not a sprint. A race that's filled with hurdles and obstacles and challenges. Our race is not over yet, so that means more trials await us. And if we'll remember even more importantly that God's work is not yet complete. He's working in us to conform us to be more spiritually mature You know, the psalmist confesses these truths, just different words. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Suffering is sanctifying. He says it differently in verse 71 of Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. May the Spirit of God strengthen each of us to come to be able to say that same thing. This passage is talking to those who are in the race, running the race, it's possible that you're really not a real runner. You've never come to that place in your life where you've recognized your sinfulness that separates you from God who is the creator and sustainer of all things, the divine judge. Maybe you've tried to fix that problem in your own efforts by doing good deeds or turning over a new leaf or being true to yourself or your opinions or doing religious deeds. It doesn't matter what it is. You're out there running the race on your own. You know, the reality of it is the things we suffer in are not necessarily different for believers and unbelievers. Financial woes can happen to either one. Diseases come upon either one. But if you don't know Christ, if you've never come to that place of, of in faith and repentance, coming to him and, and saying, I, I, I turn from living for myself and, and, and believing the world. I turn from that. I, I come to you. As my Lord and my Savior, I cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you've never come to that place, you're you're in a different course. You're you're in your own race with no one to help you. And what awaits for you is eternal judgment. So for you, it's, it's get off that course. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest only in Him. Be in this race, and all this promise applies to you then. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reorienting our hearts this morning. We confess that we many times do have troubled hearts. You've told us to not to let our hearts be troubled, and we know that's there in Scripture, but we continually have troubled hearts. As we think about the world, as we look at the waves crashing around us, we're like Peter and we sink. So, Father, thank you for these moments this morning on the Lord's Day where we can be reoriented again to right thinking, biblical thinking about you and your ways and who we are and what you desire from us, what you're doing. Lord, we do pray. There's many here today suffering troubled hearts for some reason, some angst for some reason, and they need the peaceful fruit of righteousness that starts in their soul and is manifested in their life choices. Lord, strengthen them today. They, may they leave here refreshed and encouraged. And for the one who has never come to embrace Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life, may you bring them to that place, open their hearts to believe you're the only one who can do that, that they would cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. Do that work that only you can do in our Savior's name. Amen.